Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Rita Austin, PhD, uh, PhD out of University of Oklahoma, but she tells me now at the moment she's in Colorado. Uh, we're going to be talking about ancient DNA and museum collections and, and uh, you know, things like that. So, Rita, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you sound like a, a, a medical or a biological archaeologist, but uh, tell me about yourself. What, what do you work on? Yeah, so, I mean, that's not terribly far off, um, but I primarily work in museums, uh, looking at past human remains from all over the world um, to try and understand past human experiences and uh, disease processes, uh, particularly related to tuberculosis and syphilis. Oh, yeah. Like, How long has, um, has tuberculosis and syphilis been around, do you think? Like thousands of years? Uh, tuberculosis is ancient. Like we have been evolving with it and uh, to it, etc., for millennia. Uh, syphilis is much more uh, recent, uh, as um, the documentation will say. It was first documented in 1494, I believe, in Naples uh, when it showed up in Europe. Um, but I mean, it has very strongly or closely related. Uh, subspecies of treponema does that are much more ancient um and are not venereal so oh. it's it's a little bit of um a mystery at this point um but basically syphilis is much newer than tuberculosis what are the old names for these conditions because they I, you know I, I guess one is like consumption or something and i don't know the, the old names are pretty cool yeah yeah so consumption um the wasting disease was also used for tuberculosis um and but it's sort of ironic because they called it the wasting disease but then it sort of became like a fashion statement uh because you got so skinny um and for many uh high uh like noble and um aristocratic uh victorian uh people especially women were very they they wanted to catch tuberculosis so that they could lose the weight so there's a lot of uh beauty standards associated with tuberculosis, but to your question, um, syphilis has also been called the great pox, it's been called lose, um, and let's see what else. Uh, it's horrible. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's wild. <laughs> um, about, uh, tuberculosis first, what, what, you know, well, thank God I've never had it, but uh, for people that don't know, I, I mean, how widespread is it today? Is it still a big problem? Uh, worldwide, you know, is it a third world type of thing? Like, what, what do you know about it? Yeah, uh, I can speak to that fine. It's, uh, so tuberculosis is caused by a bacterium called mycobacterium tuberculosis. Um, it is worldwide. There's different strains of the disease that are particular to different regions of the world, but overall they're basically the same. Um, and 
it's believed today uh, that about one third of the world population has latent TB. So they aren't showing any symptoms, uh, but they are infected with the mycobacterium tuberculosis, um, which can then become reactivated at any time. Uh, so that's really the danger is that you don't know that you have it and then it could uh, potentially become reactivated and then you're contagious to other people. Um, and this isn't just in third world countries. I mean, we're still dealing with it in the United States, but to a much less extent um, than other parts of the world, primarily uh, uh, outside of Europe, in Africa, Asia, and the uh, South Pacific. Um, but, but there's plenty of tests for it today. Um, it is a curable disease, albeit with uh, some very intense uh, antibacterials, um, and it takes a long time. But uh, the the good news is that it is treatable. What does it uh, do to people and why? Yeah, so uh, typically what happens with tuberculosis is that it will invade the body. Uh, in pulmonary or lung tuberculosis, it will invade the body through uh, aspirated droplets. Um, so sneezing, coughing, just general close contact with someone who's infected and get into the respiratory system where it basically attaches to the lung uh, lining and walls. And, but the uh, human immune system does a pretty quick job of quarantining it. So it will encase these uh, mycobacterium cells in nodules, very dense packets of tissue, um, where it basically goes into like a latent period where it's just sort of waiting um, for the, the human immune system to not be so strong. And that's when it becomes uh, reactivated and will then spread uh, systemically throughout the body um, and create very damaging uh, results to the lungs and to other tissues of the body. Um, skeletally, we look for uh, specific skeletal path or um, lesions uh, on the spine because that's really close to the lungs and where uh, the bacterium likes to go. Um, but it creates a lot of um, cell destruction in people. Um, so there's a lot of um, like unable to breathe, which is a big issue, um, as well as uh, because of that, they're not able to breathe, they're not able to eat, there's, um, they lose weight and they're very, very weak. Uh, typically when they reach uh, active stages of the disease. Um, and it becomes very difficult to care for yourself and to live at that point. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, when you find evidence of it, I mean, in order to do your work, do you have to look at, let's say, recently deceased people from a given disease, and that informs you what it may look like in people that have died, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago with the same disease? Like, how do you learn what you know? I guess that's a pretty broad question. Yeah, no, and there's, so what my research is really inter, interdisciplinary, where um, I take molecular uh, viewpoints as well as uh, morphological and skeletal and uh, archival information to try and recreate these past disease processes. Um, before we knew so much about the diseases um, in skeletal remains, um, yes, you would be primarily going to uh, like anatomical collections where there was known causes of death and essentially uh, analyzing the human remains to try and identify consistent, consistent uh, 
lesions or uh, patterns that were associated with this disease, um, tuberculosis, for instance. Uh, and then you would be able to know for sure that uh, if you were looking at an individual that you didn't know the cause of death, that they died from tuberculosis. Unfortunately, when we look into the past, though, uh, there's a lot of diseases, including uh, syphilis to an extent and tuberculosis, um, but primarily in short infectious diseases like pneumonia, cholera, the flu, that will not leave uh, skeletal lesions. And so we can't diagnose these specific diseases in the past because we don't have any evidence of them. Um, oh. But we have gotten really good with syphilis and tuberculosis, um, looking at that. And then with uh, molecular methodologies, we're able to um, try and confirm what we think is happening or had happened skeletally um, or based on archaeological context. Um, so does that answer your question? Yeah, why, why do this, though? I mean, what, what good is it to, for you to say, oh, okay. Yeah, this person died of uh, tuberculosis or syphilis 10,000 years ago. Right. A hundred years ago. I mean, I could see if they were an important historical figure. You know, like, let's say you had Al Capone's body and, you know, legend has it he died of syphilis and you wanted to confirm that. That makes total sense. But, you know, what if you had like some random person that no one knew who they were? They lived 4,000 years ago. And, you know, like, why why would it be important to see that they died of tuberculosis or something, you know, for instance? Yeah, um, thanks for the clarification. The uh, benefit of doing this type of research is so that we can better understand these pathogens in the past and how they've changed over time, uh, especially for because these diseases are still affecting human populations today. Um, as recent as 2015, there was an outbreak of syphilis in Oklahoma City. Um, there's still continual outbreaks of TB around the world. And when we think about what we know of how the pathogens or the virulence actions, um, as well as the uh, spread of these diseases has changed over time. So what mechanisms specifically have changed, we can start to understand or target these different mechanisms for the outbreaks that are happening today um, and better be better prepared for them, um, as well as understanding if there's any sort of way to prevent them. Yeah, you said that the syphilis and TB and other diseases have evolved and evolved with us. So what, what's that mean? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, for tuberculosis in particular, we have uh, tuberculosis being found in ancient Inca mummies from Peru, as well as ancient Egyptian mummies um, that date from about uh, 400 BC and 3,000 years ago, roughly. Uh, so we also have a lot of... Um, cases of tuberculosis happening in uh, that are associated with global trade, such as the uh, uh, Canadian fur trade. Um, there's a great paper about that. And thinking about how wherever humans go, tuberculosis was always there. Um, and we always have evidence for it. Uh, and when we base it on molecular dating, uh, the uh, molecular clock information also confirms that it's a very, very old disease. Uh, and that it's been uh, slowly changing with and to uh, different environments and uh, populations. You mentioned that um, not only have these pathogens evolved, but they've evolved with people. So, you know, what does that mean? Do they, have they become less virulent, more virulent? Are they infecting 
people in different ways that they didn't infect them before or causing symptoms that are different? Like what, what are some examples? Yeah. Okay. The, uh, exactly. They've definitely changed over time. So when they enter new populations, um, they, those people may have different, um, immune reactions to the specific strains of the diseases. Um, or there could even be cultural, uh, practices in place that slow the disease, like social distancing, or um, a good case for syphilis was that it in Europe, um, because people were constantly wearing clothes and that it spread through flea-infected clothing, that it just jumped from clothing to clothing, and the fleas weren't bothered by it. So, but when it got into colder areas, uh, it started needing um, the flea, the vector for syphilis needed uh, different uh, conditions to be able to uh, basically jump from person to person. So it was slowed down by the, the temperature in colder areas, but it still was able to live in thatched roofs on rats. It was, uh, fleas were able to live on uh, like clothing that people had and were trading for as well as um, like goods that people were like spices or um, different uh, foods that the rats and pests may eat. Um, so they, the rat is really underrated in that it was a great vector. Like it transported fleas and the disease all over the world um, and we're very efficient at it. Okay. Interesting. Um, I don't know. Are there any, have there been, any big changes in these pathogens or only small ones and you know, like what are some of the time scales in which we've been able to observe changes in these pathogens like do they tend to be quick or slow and then quick all of a sudden and then slow again like you know what do you see yeah so it'll depend on the pathogen um honestly and by chance uh, a lot of the time so uh when for instance, it, it'll depend on what the pathogens are in contact with. Um, bacteria do this really handy thing where they do horizontal gene transfer, um, which is essentially they trade different parts of the genetic codes with each other um, that may or may not be beneficial to, to them. Um, and by chance, a lot of the time, because they do it so often, uh, they're able to gain new virulence factors, so new sequences of DNA that will make them more deadly um, or um, affect the disease process potentially. Uh, and they uh, that so when they're doing that with a lot and they're in these perfect conditions, for instance, where there's high crowding for tuberculosis, there's going to be uh, and it's humid and people aren't are uh, not being treated, it's very easy uh, for tuberculosis or other bacteria to trade sort of genetic information with each other um, in these sort of unsanitary conditions. And so they can happen pretty quickly. But as far as like being instated, these virulence factors being uh, seen worldwide, that can take a little bit of time. Yeah. Is there, have you been able to determine you know, what major factors cause an acceleration of the evolution of a certain pathogen? Um, Most of them are going to be in the transmission uh, sort of routes and processes that happen. So if there's social conditions, for instance, where people are living uh, in very crowded places, such as convents, um, tuberculosis can spread much more quickly um, and then become uh, 
more virulent that way, uh, just by the fact of getting in contact with different pathogens. Uh, but yeah. I... Well, um, you know, for instance, like uh, if you knew there was a major war, you know, I don't know, uh, 800 years ago, does that tend to correlate with a sudden change in how a pathogen acts or there's a sudden crowding or migration of a population from one place to another? Or, um, I don't know, you know, there was a, a mini ice age or an ice age 10,000 years ago and did certain pathogens appear to just disappear from the record, you know, yeah. or, you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, and so, I mean, war is uh, notorious for... Uh, promoting any all sorts of sicknesses and just pathogen transmission um, because different people are be coming into contact with uh, foreign troops or foreign um, towns, et cetera. There's a lot of movement going on. So yeah, a lot of war and a lot of like uh, social things that can happen um, are like very impactful for pathogens. And because a lot of pathogens like syphilis are reliant on human hosts. Um, and they typically don't infect other organisms. Um, there's plenty that do, however. Um, but essentially with war, with many ice ages, um, and like different events happening, they will uh, facilitate different diseases. So you don't necessarily see uh, different uh, virulence uh, factors coming up. Um, you can, but there's generally what we see is going to be more and more cases occurring when there's favorable conditions for these pathogens. Okay. Are there any big accelerants you've seen? Any trends or, or changes that cause like a massive evolution or like a, a super fast one of any given pathogen? Um, well, the most recent, like I would say the, the most in like, spread of a disease uh, I know of would be like the most recent cholera outbreak in Haiti where I mean because we have global air travel we're able to there was a uh, health aid worker that went from Nepal to Haiti and transferred cholera like overnight essentially and but that also depended on the uh, um, conditions that they were in they were they didn't have separation of drinking and wastewater uh, which is what cholera really needs, um, is that fecal oral route uh, to be accessible. Um, and it was devastating. Uh, when, I mean, there's going to be the flu as well, that w it changes every year. So that's got a really fast, um, like, mutation rate, as well as it gets new virulent factors every year. And that's partially because of the number of strains that are out there. Um, and we try to predict the most impactful strains every year. And that's why the uh, vaccines for the flu are tailored to specific uh, strains of the uh, disease and try to prevent it. Um, yeah. Right. Huh. Well, I mean, what are some of the big questions that you hope to learn with your research? Uh, so when I, I'm really interested in understanding uh, past human experiences with the disease and how that relates to like, the social conditions. So health is not uh, universally felt um, across a population uh, because there's minority groups, there's different um, living conditions, depending on who you are. Um, and most famously with the Mask of the Red Death and the plague, uh, we, the people have, were touched by the plague at different rates based on the socioeconomic status. Um, and 
that doesn't necessarily mean that the disease progress within an individual changed, but those experiences, being able to have access to health and being able to uh, maintain it is privileged and also um, bioarchaeologically available to recover and reveal in the past. Um, So I think it says a lot about personal experiences when uh, you can assess someone's bones and molecularly assess their molecules to understand potentially what they died from um, or what contributed to uh, their experiences. And what I'm really interested in is reconstructing uh, like end of life circumstances from uh, human remains in the past. Have you, have you yet been able to do that? Have you been able to get, I mean, I don't know, this stuff sounds kind of morbid and grisly to me, but I guess you have a fascination with it. Um, Yeah. So, I don't know what 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 interesting things have you discovered about people's uh, you know untimely or timely ends. Well, I, they're like when I I think looking at human remains, it's uh, uh, sometimes it's very obvious what someone died from, such as like blunt force trauma or uh, like a bullet wound or something like that. Um, but other times, like with diseases, it's less apparent um, or more nuanced. Uh, so. Uh, I primarily work with a human dental calculus molecularly, and that's like the uh, tartar that your dentist scrapes off your teeth uh, when you go in for a cleaning. Um, that actually calcifies over time um, and becomes like a solid matrix, crystalline matrix, uh, that traps a whole lot of information about oral diseases and uh, different uh, conditions in the in the oral cavity. Um, so we're not just limited by looking at cavities anymore. We can sort of reconstruct these oral microbiomes and uh, different conditions of uh, potential introduction of pathogens um, because the mouth is the largest orifice and most regularly used. Uh, There's a lot of uh, potential for respiratory, gastrointestinal pathogens to be incorporated into dental calculus in the past. Interesting. So if you have someone's teeth uh, that passed away. What are some new things that have been discovered? Any famous teeth that you've looked at and uh, found interesting things about? Um, I don't think I've looked at anyone famous uh, per se, but I do know that recent uh, studies have found that, uh, like, I, I believe they were nuns. Don't quote me on that. They, uh, these women, medieval women, have uh, pigments in their teeth and in their calculus because they were painting illuminated books. Um, and that is a very particular way to paint when you're constantly uh, lip uh, pointing your your brushes and ingesting the paint and potentially toxic chemicals associated with them, um, which, I mean, is interesting because nobody else in that society was doing, uh, or very few people, I should say, were doing that sort of work. Um, so it tells something about those individuals. and. Even further in the past, there was a recent study that um, basically found like chewing gum from the past and were, was able to uh, reconstruct a lot of the pathogens and the seasonality that people were experiencing. Um, and it's gross, but it's fascinating. Oh, from chewing gum? What do you mean? What did they uh, experience? Well, so like uh, seasonality, like they, they were able to find pollen, uh, for instance, in, in this chewing cud that this person had um 
And so, like, in association with uh, seasonality that they found, they also found, like, some immune factors being expressed uh, and just sort of very personal information, I would say. Huh, interesting. Are there any particular bones that are better preserved than others? Maybe that, uh, I mean, I don't know, I guess, the you know, like, I guess it's a funny analogy, bones being picked clean, but are there any bones that, you know, maybe haven't been considered enough that could contain, you know, a lot more juicy information than other bones? Yeah, so um, human remains, like, when, it, it'll depend on whether or not you're a child or an adult. Um, ch- child remains are very, very delicate. Um, but then it also will depend on, for instance, uh, whether or not you're buried, uh or just left out in the sun, et cetera, that will also affect the information that you get from the remains, molecular or morphological information. Uh, But overall, it will depend on what your question is. For instance, uh, a lot of population geneticists um, for human populations in the past will use the petrous bone, which is a part of the inner ear of your skull. And... um, they use that to get human DNA from it to do population genetics. But you can also use the same uh, element to do dietary reconstruction um, using isotopes. So it's also like people doing pathogen research have regularly used um, the rib lesions, for instance, from tuberculosis uh, individuals uh, to recover mycobacterium tuberculosis. Um, And so but you wouldn't necessarily use the same elements for different questions. Um, overall, uh, people tend to use the petrous bone, um, really dense bone, uh, so cortical bone, as well as uh, human teeth, um, and sometimes just general lesions uh, from the skeleton that are observable. Oh, okay. Has anyone um, done a study on, I don't know, every possible bone that's been found to see, like, you know, if certain bones will have, like you said, you know, this particular one has, has some info, the teeth have another. Um, you know, I was thinking, what if, a, you know, a baby died? Uh, do they tend to have, you know, less environmental information, but more information in their bones from their parents, you know, from their mother? And just things like that. I just wonder what... Uh, yeah, and that's um, part of the exciting, yet frustrating part of uh, using human remains and skeletal elements is that it's sort of like we think of the, the preservation first when we are trying to decide what to sample, as well as the question that we're asking. Um, but over time, I mean, throughout history, like people have tried to identify the most ideal bone for X sort of analysis um, or that sort of thing. Um, but people are really finding that it's going to be like based on the question. So are you doing population genetics? Um, is the, is there a petrous bone? Is there, uh, was it preserved with shellac or anything else? Like, is there sand or other environmental contamination in there? Was it, um, particularly for museum collections, what, how heavily handled was the collection? Um, and whether or not they were boiled or macerated in specific ways that may affect what we're finding in the molecules uh, or the molecular data. And, but overall, I mean, it's a rather disappointing answer, but there's not one really good bone for any one research question. Well, yeah, I'm not even assuming there's just one, but has there been a study, like, has there been enough study, you feel, of all the candidates 
to then line them up with all the things that might be learned from them. You know, I didn't even know what you'd call this, but again, has there been like a big study of like all the bones? You know? Yeah, people have tried to do a general like overall DNA recoverability from different skeletal elements, um, which has directed uh, several uh, like current studies even um, to um, really focus on the petrous bone rather than using um, the tibia, for instance, or um, even worrying about sampling the tarsal bones, for instance. Okay. Is there a name for that? This, I mean, it's just, you know, the study of bones or is there something else under name? Well, so, I mean, the study of bones is osteology and the, I think what you're asking about is the, like, optimization of the DNA recovery or molecular recovery from human remains. Yeah. And that's uh, generally a process that has been going on for quite some time uh, since the advent of uh, high throughput molecular uh, data technology. So what do you see as the the future of your work in the next few years? What do you think? uh, Where is there a breakthrough coming or a new area or a new bone that, you know, has a ton of study that needs to be done on it that's going to reveal a lot of cool stuff? Yeah, so... uh, because I work, I mean, potentially I'm biased, but I do think that museum collections hold a lot of information that are just now being tapped in. Um, and so there's a lot of information that is in there, including from non-human remains uh, that could potentially uh, inform how we think about and understand uh, pathogens from avian uh, sources or even uh, from pigs, such as for influenza. Um, and other uh, diseases, uh, trying to get uh, representative samples from different parts of the world and from different uh, taxa. But I mean, I personally really, really like teeth. Um, I would, I, I think there's going to be a lot of work being done on human teeth as well as uh, non-human teeth that really tell us about the organism as well as the uh, life ways and experiences of them uh, to try and understand what happened in the past. Well, I guess the average age that people lived to wasn't very long, supposedly, you know, a hundred plus years ago or certainly a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, maybe studying wisdom teeth, if you found the old skeleton, you know, a couple thousand years old that had wisdom teeth, you know, those teeth probably wouldn't have been, have, um, been exposed to the outer environment, to the food, et cetera, the person ate very long. They might have just gotten them before they died, you know? Potentially, yeah. And there's plenty of wisdom teeth. ones too, you know? Exactly, yes. Um, there's plenty of teeth, uh, wisdom teeth in the, uh, that, that are still in the crypts, um, for instance. And, uh, but the, then the issue becomes, uh, do you destroy the jaw um, to get to them? Um, do you hope that they are developed enough to uh, have the enough dental pulp uh, to sample um, rather than just the enamel. Um, And so there's just like those small details to consider, but definitely uh, like looking at um, teeth as a way to time different development is already been done, but also doing that molecularly will be incredibly interesting. Again, an erupted versus an unerupted uh, tooth, they'd be exposed to very different environments. So, you know, I wonder what you can learn from that. No, 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 no. So there's a lot to, a lot to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the uninterrupted teeth part is uh, very cool because they they. I mean, if you've seen a child's skull with 
uh, all the teeth forming inside um, cutaway jaws and skulls, it's almost like they're alien. Um, yeah. So huh. it's incredible. Like they, there's a full set of uh, deciduous teeth, um, when, particularly when you're around seven or eight, um, going on 10, and they'll have a full set like in their heads. <laughs> wow. Well, very cool. Well, Rita, this is interesting stuff you're working on. I know obviously it fascinates you more and some people may go, Ugh, but it's, it's cool that you're into this stuff. I mean, you know, we need people interested in everything. So what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and, you know, have you set up your own exhibit, your own curated exhibit of things that you found over the years? Uh, so probably the best way to find me at the moment is going to uh, the Laboratories of Molecular Anthropology and Microbiome Research uh, website um, through the University of Oklahoma. I should still be listed there. Um, and I have worked with Dr. Courtney Hoffman. Um, I also have worked uh, pretty exclusively with uh, the Smithsonian, uh, the Natural History Museum. Uh, so I am available through them as well. Um, but there's no, I don't have a website yet, which I need to get on. But um, okay. yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's uh, been very exciting. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.